Are you tired of being broke? Do you struggle with debt? Are you ready for a change? If so, you found the right place. Welcome to the Proper Sense Podcast, where money doesn't talk, it works. My name is Eric, and I invite you to join me and my co-hosts, Keith and Nick, as we reveal the truth about how to succeed financially. Whether you're just beginning your journey or have many miles behind you, we're here to help. If you would like to follow or contact us, visit propersense.com. Welcome to the Proper Sense Podcast, where money doesn't talk, it works. I'm Keith, and I'm back with my co-host, Eric. I'm excited. Today we're going to talk about what's all the rave. You can't go to the water cooler without some self-proclaimed expert filling your ear. Shit, your parents and absentee uncle are probably calling you about it. Today, we talk cryptocurrency. But first, hi Eric. Hey Keith, how's it going? Uh, it's it's lovely up here. It's It's been beautiful and it looks like for the remainder of the week or through the weekend, we're going to be in the low 80s, which again here in Washington is about as good as it gets, especially this time of the year. Um, what are you guys, up over 100 there yet? Yeah, we just broke the 100 mark here last week. We've had a few dipping back down in the 90s, but I think we might be saying goodbye to the, to the double digits for a bit. But uh, hopefully we get one more cool wave before the... the the dog days of summer or the, what do you want to call it? The hot part of summer hits us. So where are you guys at down there as far as COVID and being open? I, you know, I was down there a handful of months ago and it seemed pretty lax already, understanding that Arizona tends to go that way anyway. I ask because here in Washington, obviously a more liberal place, our governor announced yesterday, and it's all the talk right now, that uh, if you're fully vaccinated, you are no longer required to wear masks. Businesses have the choice as to uh, whether to make you wear them within their establishment. But uh, what I'm seeing is a lot aren't. And even on Facebook this morning, I'm seeing restaurants that have been closed for over a year with the news yesterday opening as of today. So it's it's big news around here. Where are you guys at in this trend? Well, before I touch on Arizona, I think that you're seeing that in Washington just because you saw the CDC actually release that yesterday. So Washington is just probably sticking to the CDC, CDC recommendation. So I wouldn't give the governor too much credit for being the one that came up with that decision because I think he's just piggybacking off of the federal government. But, um, you know, politics aside, Arizona has been obviously more lax or more open. This entire process depends on your mindset and what you want to call it. You know, I, my wife and I, we've been, we've been continuing to go out to dinner relatively frequently over this entire process. All the businesses were set up, you know, at 50 or 40% capacity, but there was never a point when everything was just shut down. So here, I think it was a little bit more of a focus of keeping businesses alive while balancing the health risk. Some people might say otherwise, but, you know, there's a lot more participants in this overall situation than just the individuals getting sick or not getting sick. Um, that's probably something for a different time. But as far as Arizona goes, it hasn't really been that different over the last handful of months. We've just started to relax some of the other rules. Um, so businesses can 
put more people into them, but I've yet to see one that is doing it. So still most restaurants are at about 50% table spread out, you know, out of habit. We all still wear a mask in and out until you get to the table. You still have the people, you know, that come rolling in and, and it's a political statement for them. And so they're going to rip their masks off and they're going to yell at a manager for recommend or requesting that they do it. But by and large, I think we've, we've handled it somewhat reasonably as far as balancing it between small business and keeping people safe. Well, it's, it's palpable up here, and I'm, I'm actually really glad to see that we're starting to turn the ship, um, so to speak. You know, you're talking about going out to eat and things like that. Here in Washington, specifically where I'm at in Clark County, um, there's just not a lot of that going on. People have been scared. Business has been shut down. Uh, people have been hurt financially through this whole process. Uh, it's been very real. And if, you, if you're not following the rules specifically, you're getting calls with one of the businesses that I oversee uh, with the development company that I'm with. Um, we've, we've been warned by the state uh, that we're, we're going to be audited if we don't comply. And so it's just, it's really been a, a, a real lockdown up here for a really long time. And it's good to finally feel like people are starting to feel safe enough and we've accomplished enough to start opening things back up and getting back to work. For example, even dropping my kids off at preschool this morning, uh, I walked in with my mask on and for the first time in over a year, None of the teachers, none of the staff had masks on as of yesterday's announcement. So uh, people have been uh, waiting for that to come down and, and aren't uh, holding back on following the new restrictions and ripping those masks off. But it's good to see businesses getting back at it or at least starting to look that way. Yeah, I think one of the advantages here in Arizona is for most of the year, it's very nice to be outside. So restaurants are built with, you know, anywhere from 25 to 50% of their capacity generally outside. And so during the winter, obviously you guys up in Washington, it's not very favorable to sit out on the patio when it's 42 degrees and it's raining sideways. We're down here at 75 and, and, and pretty nice. So they, we had a little, and also there's a lot of space down here. Um, you know, the build out has been broad, but especially where I live out on the outskirts of Phoenix, there's a lot of space. So restaurants are big, so they could afford to move people out, put them outside, put them farther away without having to cram them in. And so, you know, combine that with a little bit uh, more of a lax rule system, they were able to chug through a lot of them more. Yeah. With the weather being as it is up here in winter, we've just decided to build buildings outside of our buildings that we could put people in. We've all heard heard the joke around that, but that's all pretty silly. Anyway, I'm excited to jump into today's topic, cryptocurrency, as I mentioned earlier. And as I said, it's just all the rave. You can't turn on the news without hearing somebody talk about it. You can't look at Twitter without Elon saying something in its regard. Uh, you talk to your coworkers at work and they're all thinking they're gonna get rich on the deal. So let's jump in. Eric, you've been following this, let's call it a phenomenon for over a decade now and have a unique perspective that I would argue most people don't, even if they think that they do. So I'd like to start kind of simplistic here and just sort of ask your definition of what the hell is cryptocurrency? First off, I'll say the vast majority of people that talk about it are full of shit. They have no idea what they're talking about. They might know a little bit about something like Bitcoin, and they think that they're an expert. Uh, to answer your question, cryptocurrency in a broad sense is an asset class that was started with Bitcoin. And for the most part, it's built off of decentralized blockchains 
And the tokens and coins that come along with that serve many different purposes. And that's one of the biggest misconceptions. I mean, even right now, I was interested to see what some of the top content farms wrote about it. And so I Googled, you know, what is cryptocurrency? And the first response talks about it's a form of digital payments that you can send back and forth in lieu of cash to make online purchases. And that doesn't even begin to touch the breadth of what cryptocurrency is, what it can do, where it's going, where it came from. It's a very simplistic, you know, content written, farmed marketing pitch to try to get people to go to a website and click on the ads. It's absolutely bullshit. And it doesn't even begin to explain what this technology is and where it can go. So in a broad sense, cryptocurrency is the asset class as we're referring to it now uh, with tokens and coins that are built on top of what are called blockchains. So you mentioned decentralized, and I understand that meaning that there's not a monetary policy that's backing it. There's not a government that's that's establishing the rules and regulations around it. Um, let me know if I'm if I'm correct in that, or or give the listeners a better idea of exactly what decentralized means when you say it. Sure. So decentralized means there's not a trusted third party. So when you get your bank statement or when you check your balance on your phone or on the computer or you if you if it's 1987 and you walk into a bank to actually get your balance whatever it is they give you a little note or they show it on the screen or you open it up in the mail and it tells you how much money you have in your bank account well you only have that much money because the bank says you have that much money so the bank is the custodian of your dollars they hold it and just ask anybody in the late 20s that lived through the bank runs during the Great Depression and ask them how much money they thought they had in the bank. So when you trust a third party, you have to trust that not only their information is correct, but they actually have what they say they have of yours. So, you know, if you have $10,000 in the bank and something happens and they lose record of that and you don't have any way to prove it, there's nothing you can do about it because it's their own ledger, whether it's written down, whether it's in computer databases, whatever it is, that says that you own it. And there's a lot more to it than that. But in a basic sense, a centralized system is one that relies on a trusted third party to give you the information or to hold something. Decentralized removes that. So if I have Bitcoin, for example, on a decentralized immutable ledger, which is the blockchain, Nobody can take that from me. Nobody can garnish it from me. No one can say that I don't have it. As long as I hold on to the, what are called private keys, I'm the only one that can do anything with it. So I don't have to trust a third party with my assets. Okay, so talk to us a little more about the blockchain, what it is and what its use is in helping to decentralize the currency and track the monetary flow. A blockchain is a copy of all of the transactions that happen within one of these specific systems. So take Bitcoin, for example. It has a blockchain that all of the transactions are stored on. Rather than that being held with a bank or a central entity like a trusted third party system would be, there are copies of it all over the world on computer systems. Any individual can run a copy of it any business, any government entity, anybody that wants to run a copy on their own node can. 
And all of these nodes connect to make this global system that all have the exact same copy of all of the transactions. So if I send you know, one Bitcoin from here to there, when that transaction is recorded, all of the nodes around the entire world will sync up and they will copy that. And that transaction now is verified and it is guaranteed that is where it is and whoever owns it or has those private keys is now the custodian of that Bitcoin. And there's no government, there's no bank, there's no business, there's no individual that can go in and take it back or invalidate it or do anything of the sort. So it's a decentralized system that is impervious to being things being removed. So, you know, like the government can garnish your wages, for example, because they control the United States dollar system. They can't garnish your Bitcoin or any other of those tokens because the system is all decentralized and everybody's got the exact same copy. So at its simplest, are you saying it's a, an accounting of all of that crypto's monetary transactions? It's the ledger that is recording the transfer of those coins. In Bitcoin, that's probably the easiest way to describe it. You know, there's many other cryptos out there that serve different purposes and their blockchains do different things. But when we're referring to Bitcoin, that's probably the easiest way to describe it. It's just a ledger of all of the transactions and show it so it shows where all of those bitcoin are at all times and it's immutable okay i do want to talk a little bit of about bitcoin but before i do that we didn't plan on jumping into this but i think a lot of people listening um have heard the term mining uh and and have this idea that people have gotten rich and i think in the past there's there's been some people that have um, but the game of mining has changed, I think, over the last decade, more so in the last handful of years. Can you speak just a little bit about what mining means? And is it something that somebody could sit down with their MacBook Pro today and have the computing power to participate in, or has the game completely changed? In reference to Bitcoin, the mining game is over for the individual user. That, uh, that was years ago. And what mining is, is it's the process of calculating basically what are called hashes, determining what the next hash is. And that's a little bit technological. You know, it's a little bit more advanced probably than most people need to care about. But what, it, what they're doing is they're processing this data and they're verifying these transactions at the same time. So whenever a block is created, that block has all of the transactions in it and then that moves over to the blockchain. And that's what the miners would do. They're the ones processing that information. Uh, as far as mining to make money in Bitcoin, it's gotten so big and difficult that the only people that are really doing that now are usually organizations, oftentimes overseas um, and in various parts of the, the world where, where energy costs are lower because that's kind of the main input now is electricity costs. When it comes to other cryptos, there are ones that you can you can mine at home. You can set up a mining rig. You can if you've got a gaming computer. For the most part, though, you need to have a, a video card. So you're talking about a MacBook Pro. No, you don't want to be doing any mining on a laptop or anything. If you have a high-end, you know, video game computer system that you've built recently and you've got a good graphics card, there are certainly uh, cryptos out there that you can mine now and potentially make a few bucks. You know, make a few bucks a day even on one card, which could add up over time, especially as the value of those rise. The main input, though, again, you always have to be conscious of is your energy costs. So your 
you know, if your video card is running nonstop at 100%, 24 hours a day mining crypto, it's going to increase your energy costs. It's going to increase the electrical charge that you get every every month. So if you have high electricity costs, it's probably not going to be very prudent to do it. But if you have, if you live in an area with very low costs and you already have the equipment, yeah, you can do it. You just go online, do a little research, and you might be able to find one you can turn some dollars on. So last on this, is the theory, because it is decentralized, that this blockchain, this entire monetary online monetary process, um, has to have computing power behind it. And that's where individual uh, computer processors and, and mining come into place. Is, is that a good way to think about it? It depends on what one you're talking about. So Bitcoin is a sort of a brute force system that requires a lot of electricity. And that's one of the big sort of negatives about the system. And that's what's shown up a lot in the news lately. Um, and and that there is some truth in that. So the mining process of getting the Bitcoins out and processing the transaction takes a lot of computing power. However, there's many cryptocurrencies that have been developed in the last number of years that have moved away from that type of system. And one of the, the second largest one that actually serves a completely different purpose than Bitcoin, which is called the Ethereum blockchain, and the token on that is called Ether, they're moving from what's called a proof of work system to a proof of stake system. And so when that happens, which it's expected sometime towards the end of 2021, early 2022, it's going to bring the computational power and, and energy requirements down by over 99%. So that, I think, is, is a good thing. Uh, for, so for anybody that is reading about it in the news and saying, oh, this is just too much power, there's too much carbon going into this process, look at something like Ethereum because they're actually moving away from that entire model to something that'll be very, very um, energy efficient. Okay, Eric, I want you to talk specifically about Bitcoin. Uh, I think th that most of us listening know that there's a lot of different cryptocurrencies out there. They seem to be popping up and some are gaining more traction than others. But seeing as how this entire cryptocurrency re uh, revelation um, or revolution rather started with Bitcoin, what is Bitcoin specifically? How does it maybe differ You've touched upon it a little bit, uh, contrasting it with Ethereum there. Um, but what is Bitcoin and, and, and how did it get started and how is it different? It really depends on who you ask. So, you know, Bitcoin originally in the beginning, the, the idea behind it was it was going to be something like digital cash. It was going to be a way to make online payments. It was going to be a way to send money instantly, right? You could send it across borders. You don't have to deal with Western Union. You don't have to deal with taxes. You could, it, it was it, it was kind of a, a shot against the central banks. Like, hey, you guys have been screwing this up. You're printing money out of control. You know, we're going to create our own system. But the idea originally was a, a method of payment. Now, you'll, there's still people and there are systems built alongside and over the top of Bitcoin that do allow for that, but it hasn't really hit critical mass like people expected. So, what Bitcoin in its current state has moved into is a little bit more of what people would call a store of value. So without getting too into the weeds of what money actually is and fiat currency and all that, a store of value would be a little bit more similar to gold. So 
gold is something that we know for thousands of years in some level has maintained value. And so in Bitcoin's current state, it's moved into more of that space where people refer to it a little bit more as, as digital gold. And when you talk about it in that context, it sounds like there's a lot of runway for it to gain more market value because, you know, we were talking about as of today, maybe a close to a trillion dollar market value and gold is 10, 15 times that right now. And one of the one of the, the beauties of something like Bitcoin, it's easily transferable. It's very easy to store once you know what you're doing. You know, if you had a million dollars in gold, what are you going to do with it? You know, do you have to go pay somebody else to hold on to it? Do you just bury it in the backyard? With something like Bitcoin, it makes it a lot easier to not only transport it or send it places, but it's just a lot easier to hold on to and keep track of if you just learn a few basic techniques as it pertains to uh, uh, storing the storing the coins. Okay, you, you talked about the store of value, and, and that's interesting. My next question then is, where does it, cryptocurrency, whether that's Bitcoin, Ethereum um, specifically, derive its value? You know, you talk about it having a trillion dollar market value right now, where at least gold, or when we operated on the gold standard, there was something tangible that we could point to and say, that's the value. So is it is it like the US dollar is today, in that it's just the faith of the people that are operating within it? Well, I think most things are like that, especially in the digital world, right? So, you know, when you think about Facebook, for example, sure, for an advertiser, it's it's just pure gold, right? You got people just volunteering all their information and, and, and they can market to the people however they want. It's pretty easy. But for the user, it doesn't really do anything. It, it, it connects you to people, so that's intangible, so we assign value to it. The dollar... We, we trust it because the government says that it's backed, you know, that it's fine. Gold, I mean, there's arguments all the time. You get in an argument with a gold bug just for fun and tell them like, well, where does the value of gold come from? And they'll, you know, cite 2,000 years of history or 5,000 years or whatever it is. At the end of the day, all of these things just have value because we decided they have value. You know, it's like I remember being, being probably 12 years old and having a Justin... What was his name? Oh, I can't remember his name now. But it was a baseball rookie card, and I'd look it up in the Beckett and see, oh, it's worth 30 bucks. And then I'd walk into the card stop, shop thinking I was going to sell it for 30 bucks. And you find out real quick what value actually means. You know, something's only worth what something else, someone else is willing to pay for it. So as it comes to Bitcoin, the, part of it comes from that. We've just, there's been enough inertia, there's been enough people adopting it. But the big thing, and where, where, you know, if you haven't heard this, this is one of the most important aspects of Bitcoin. Bitcoin is scarce. There's only ever going to be 21 million of them made. And we're already, I, I want to say, somewhere at 18 million. So there's not very many left. So all the ones, if you want to get in, if you want to buy them, you've got to buy them from somewhere else, someone else. And like with any sort of free market setup, if there's more people that want it than are willing to sell it, the price goes up. And if that continues to go, then it keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. And so now when you're looking at a time we're in now where you've got federal reserves or the federal reserve printing a lot of money for stimulus checks, for infrastructure building, you've got other central banks around the world doing the same thing, trying to prop up their economies, get money into the hands of people after this whole COVID deal. It's, you can see a lot of talk about inflation. And so what people do in that type of environment is they run to things that are stores of value. They run to gold, they run to real estate. 
certain types of stock. Now we have this new asset class, cryptocurrency, and specifically leading the charge, we have Bitcoin. So if we go back to what I was talking about earlier and calling it digital gold, well, you can see why people are flooding into it. And you can see why the price has gone up over $50,000 in the last handful of months, because not only is it starting to be seen as a store of value, but it's also scarce. And the fewer there are of something, generally, the more that it's going to be worth. And so when there's 21 million total, there can only ever be 21 million people that hold an entire Bitcoin. And that'll never happen because many people will hold more than that. I remember Beckett's. Do those still exist? Um, he, you talked about scarcity and the finite amount of Bitcoins and the marketplaces trading amongst themselves. I think that that's a, that's a big thing that I want to address to the people listening. I've talked to so many different people and a number one fear that I hear is their lack of understanding of its actual liquidity and not understanding how to a purchase, you know, coins or shares of coins, but how, if ever they could get their money back, maybe not realizing that Bitcoin is trading 24 seven in real time. And with your checking accounts linked to it uh, at, at its current stage, in any case, you can buy and sell and liquidate within a matter of hours. Um, Talk to us about just the liquidity of it. You can sell and buy Bitcoin 24 hours a day, just like you said. And in the early days, I remember the first time I even dabbled in this whole space. I had to go down to Rite Aid down the street from my house, buy a money order, mail it to some random address, wait two weeks before it showed up on this messaging forum. And then I was allowed to, after paying, you know, $100 in fees for probably buying $100 worth and then waiting for some random person on the internet to send me the Bitcoin to some address that I didn't really understand. That is not how it is now. You can go on to something like uh, Kraken, you can go to Coinbase, you can go to BlockFi, you can go to a number of these venture-backed, I mean, Coinbase even went public. It's a publicly traded company now. And it, if you've used online banking, it will feel almost the same way. You go on, you link your checking account, you can transfer funds straight in there, and you can be buying and selling Bitcoin 24 hours a day, just along with pretty much any of the other cryptocurrencies you've heard of. So as far as as far as far the liquidity goes, like we said, it's 24 hours a day. It's always there. There are always people buying and selling. So you can be in and out of a Bitcoin or, a ther or Ether sale in minutes and have money back in your account. And then all you're doing, the funny part is, is the longest part of the transaction is waiting for the legacy banking system to send the cash ACH either direction. So within the crypto space, you if you're already in there, you can take cash or you could take Bitcoin, you can sell it, you can buy something else, you could do that 20 times in an hour with different cryptocurrencies. But the slowest part of the entire process is getting your fiat from your bank into the system and then getting it from the system out of the system. And so you know, that's just one of kind of the side examples of why this technology is taking off so much because it makes things frictionless once you're in the system. But yeah, you'll never have a problem selling or buying it once you're established on any of these uh, big account or big platforms. Thank you for that. I think that adds some real clarity. And I think that that's a friction point for a lot of people who don't um, completely understand what's going on here. Let's talk about what is the problem that cryptocurrency generally is trying to solve? I think a lot of people out there have this notion 
that it was designed to completely replace the US dollars, not even having the wherewithal to understand that this is a worldwide currency and a huge technology that will beget further technologies that we haven't even quite discovered yet. And it can be revolutionary for many reasons. So I think that maybe the at the beginning, uh, there was a certain set of problems that crypto was set out to solve. I think that it's maturing and changing over time. But if you could condense that down, what is it trying to do? Or maybe a better question is, what is it possibly going to do? So this is another one of those things that it depends on who you talk to, right? So eight years ago, there was a tiny subset of us that were all on these messaging forums that nobody else knew about and or had any interest in. And anytime you... you'd dared to speak about Bitcoin specifically to, you know, your general friend circle, you had to be prepared to be people either look at you like they didn't know what you were talking about, or if they had heard something possibly ridicule you because you seemed like this, you know, tech geek over here in the corner that didn't, that was, you know, talking about whatever. So in those circles back in the day, there was a lot of, you know, this is going to overthrow the government. This is going to be, you know, the, the the way that the little man gets out from the thumb from the rich people, you know, and all it, this this sort of uh, libertarian view. And there's still a lot of truth in that, um, in the sense that it democratizes finance and it has the potential to to spread some of this stuff out and and not keep it as centralized and you know some of the smaller rich groups as people like to say, but. You know that was that was the original intent. It was it was a response, especially after the 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 um, Great Recession. That just maybe these maybe these politicians aren't doing it always the right way. Maybe they are the ones that are going to cause the next big one or the last one, or like all of these things. And so it was an effort to sort of put things back in the hands of the of the individual. Now, since then, I would say it's been a little bit more like the internet, right? So when the internet was first developed, it was developed as a communication tool between colleges so they could share research and do various things like that. But after they unlocked that, you started to see what the potential could be. Or we actually didn't see what the potential could be, but we we understood that we had unlocked some new technology, right? And so now when you fast forward 30 years from when the internet was first starting to gain a little traction, you can see how it's just embedded into every single aspect of our lives, right? Your lawnmower probably comes with an app. I mean, my coffee mug, literally the coffee mug that I'm drinking out of right now has an app because it heats up my coffee and I can control it with the, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's embedded everywhere. So as far as what it set out to solve and what it has the potential to solve, I think that it it had a very specific use case in the beginning, but now we're starting to unlock potentially what this can grow into. So, you know, getting away from Bitcoin, because we, we all tend to focus on Bitcoin because it's the big brother in the room. It's the one everybody knew about. It's the one they show on the ticker on, you know, CNBC and Bloomberg in the morning. But the the other up and comers and some of the established ones have actually started to unlock a lot more potential using blockchain technology. So moving over to number two on the market cap, and you talk about the Ethereum system, what that is, is basically a worldwide supercomputer that people can build apps on top of. So, and they use a blockchain and they use the Ether token in order to do that. So without getting too technical, excuse me, without getting too technical on it, think about it like this. 
The iPhone wasn't revolutionary because it had a touch screen and it came with 20 different apps like you can set an alarm and do your email and send messages. It was revolutionary because of the App Store. It was revolutionary because they built a platform that allowed developers to then build on top of it. And that is why your phone is so powerful. That is why Android phones are so powerful because it was a platform that was that allowed the all of the the I guess locked up developer and and entrepreneurial minds to build things on top of it. And so we are just starting to see that in the Ethereum ecosystem. You have things called DeFi, which is decentralized finance. So we're seeing the first wave of these sort of bank replacements that are being built on top of the Ethereum blockchain. And all of these systems that are built on top of it will require the Ether token in order to to operate. And so, you know, at the end of the day, what is it going to solve? Who knows? I mean, right now, everybody's taking a stab at everything. There's coins and tokens for just about anything you can think of. And most of them will go away and they won't pan out, but there will be some that will stick around. And and we're going to find out in the next five, 10 years how far this technology can really go. So, Eric, are you saying kind of the uh, catalyst to this technology is that it is, in a way, open source? A hundred percent. I mean, that, that's the beauty of the whole thing, right? So you can, go, you can go read all of the code to all of these things. All of the people that are making the, the decisions or the changes to these protocols, they don't control them. They, they, they can go, I can go copy the Ethereum blockchain right now, which some people have done many times, and I can call it, you know, Eric's chain, and I can do whatever the heck I want to it. And if I can or get enough people, yeah, that was, that was a spinoff of Litecoin, that I can get enough people to buy into the system, then I can do whatever I, I mean, not I can do whatever I want, but anybody can contribute. So anybody can contribute to the ETH, Ethereum code. Anybody can contribute to the Bitcoin code. And it's up to the, it's up to the participants in the ecosystem, whether they adopt those changes or not. And so, you know, for most of the big ones, we have foundations or groups of people that are kind of seen as the lead developers. And we often communicate with them and and follow their recommendations. But if at any point somebody decided that this next update was bad and it wasn't going to be good for the ecosystem, then you have all the miners, you have the the validators, you have the nodes, whatever it is, they just don't switch over to the new system. And so it's completely decentralized, not like when you log into your bank account and they've just completely changed how everything works and you didn't have any input. That was extremely well articulated. Thank you. Uh, Eric, let me ask you the question that I think most people, if not everyone, has on their mind. Um, But before I do, let me preface this by stating that we are not giving financial advice And we certainly are not yours or generally financial advisors. But Eric, should we invest? Invest in what? Well, let's take the top three, right? Let's let's take Bitcoin, Ethereum, uh, and I think even Doge is is number four. Uh, Maybe maybe we can save the conversation of Doge for for another time. But should new, you know new investors or new people to cryptocurrencies generally, maybe that don't have a whole bunch of extra dollars lying around. Now you can buy in at fractions of coins, so a buck gets you into play. Should people be considering to jump on this bandwagon or should they 
continue to consider it a super speculative investment and to stay away and the type of investment that is left for only those that have already fully diversified their portfolio and can assume the risk of jumping into such a, such a speculative space? That's a great question. And there's a lot of layers to it because it depends a lot on the individual and their own personal circumstance. But I'll give you the, the same answer that I give to all of my friends that come to me and, and ask me that same question. And, and mind you, you know, my friends are now late 30s, 40s. Uh, most of them are fairly established. So, you know, it's to different. include your brother. Yeah, it's different than than, you know, if you're 22 and you've got $400 to your name. But the thing is, is that this technology is either going to be revolutionary or it's going to fizzle out. Or the third possibility is it just finds some mediocre position over here and serves a few use cases and nothing major. If it is revolutionary, we're still in the beginning. This is not even close to what it, its potential could be. Now, can I predict whether that's going to happen or not? Absolutely not. I've already been pretty shocked at where things have gone over the last 10 years. But you know, at the end of all of it, it's my opinion that everybody should at least be in a little bit. You should at least put your toe in it. Um, if you've if you've been following our other advice and you've got a budget and you're investing and you're looking at your asset allocations and you want to put somewhere around, call it 5% of your overall asset allocation into well-established, researched cryptocurrency, I would invite you to do that. Do I think you should YOLO you know, 80% of everything you've got into Dogecoin tomorrow because all of the kids are talking about it on Twitter and it's up, you know, 4,000% in the last month? Absolutely not. I've seen people do that every one of these runs, every one of these bull runs that we've had. I've watched people do the same mistakes over and over. And so, you know, it's like anything else. You shouldn't invest in things you don't really understand. It doesn't mean you need to be a professional on it, but understand what the difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum is. If you don't understand the basics of something like that, then you might want to spend a little time researching first. But to answer your question, I think that on the on the chance that this is something massive, as it already is starting to show, it's better to be on the inside, even if it's just with a little bit, than on the outside. But do not put in more than you're willing to lose. So if 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 you putting $10,000 in and losing it tomorrow would absolutely negatively affect your life, that's too much because the the ride is wild. It will go up, you know, 100% in a few weeks. It'll crash 60% in a day, and if you can't stomach that type of up and down over the long term, then it might not be a space that you want to put much into. I think that's what we can all take away. Do not put more in than you are willing to lose. Um, this is a huge and obviously very interesting topic that we will spend more time on down the road, but that's all the time that we have today. Thank you, Eric. That was excellent and great information. So there you have it, folks. Straight from the horse's mouth. Cryptocurrency, like most things financial, can seem daunting until you just educate yourself. Don't be afraid to ask the seemingly dumb questions. Better to put yourself out there than lose out on a strong investment opportunity. Join us on the next Proper Sense podcast and check us out at propersense.com.